starting a new book this morning. Let's go ahead and take our seats and let's have a word of prayer here as we get ready to start. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for the people you brought out and what a beautiful morning it is just to come out and worship you. Just enjoy you and who you are, Lord. Thank you for this. I just pray at this time here that we stopped us to get into your word. You would teach. We would listen. Let your spirit guide and direct in all things, Lord. And help us to be impacted by this, to go out and truly be lights and witnesses in all that we say and all that we do for you and your glory in your name. Amen. All right, 2 Timothy, starting a new book this morning. Finished up our study in Romans last week and moving on now into 2 Timothy. Now, when I was kind of praying about what book to go through and where to go next, um, I was looking through the list of books that we've taught throughout here over the years, and my mind kind of came to 2 Timothy. The reason we wanted to go to 2 Timothy is this is Paul's last letter. Romans is Paul's probably greatest theological work led by the Spirit there and just so much foundational truth. So much foundational truth on what a walk with Christ looks like from a theological standpoint, from a practical standpoint. Second Timothy, this is the last letter that Paul writes. Most people believe this was written in the late A.D. 60s, maybe around A.D. 67. This is Paul's second imprisonment. Now, if you remember how the book of Acts ends, Paul ends under house arrest. This is where he writes the book of Philippians, etc. And he was under a house arrest. Now, he gets done with that trial. He's set free. He gets arrested again a second time. And now the second time leads to his execution. And so this book right here is the last epistle that Paul writes. Most people believe he is writing this from the dark dungeon, if you will, in chains, awaiting execution. And just think about that for a second. If you had this last moment to write a letter to your protege, to the people you love, what would you want to say? Now, obviously, this is spirit-led, but you also see Paul's personal life in this as the spirit uses that. What a blessing it is this book is to read. So I just want you to remember as you go through this, where this is written from. Written from that that dungeon of life, if you will, from that prison, awaiting execution. And written to Timothy. And we'll get into a little bit here of who Timothy is. So with that being said, let's see what Paul has to say in this final letter. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Kind of Paul's standard greeting there. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how most of his letters start out. Don't ever overlook that. The longer I walk with the Lord, the longer I'm in this world, I just want peace. Peace is priceless. When you have peace, all of a sudden you're not worrying about the bills, you're not worrying about health, you're not worrying about this situation. You just have peace. Well, how do we get peace? Well, you have to see the combination here in verse 2. You need the grace and the mercy before you can even think about having peace. Grace, that picture of God's gift to you, something you don't deserve, something you haven't earned, grace. Mercy, God not giving you what you have earned or deserved. I have earned and deserved hell because of my sin. God's mercy says you don't get that. Grace, I have not earned or deserved heaven. God's grace says, but James, I'll open the doors of heaven to you through Christ. When I have grace and mercy, guess what I have? I have peace. So grace, mercy, and peace. Where does this come from? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Got to remember that. How often are people looking for grace, mercy, and peace in this world, and they do not include that in Christ Jesus our Lord? You're never going to find it. Yeah, you'll have moments, maybe. 
moments, small seasons of life where you feel everything is coming together. But unless you have a relationship with Christ, unless that is the foundation of your life, through grace and mercy, you'll never be able to have peace. Never be able to have peace. Now look back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle. That means one who has been sent with a purpose. Paul personally met Jesus in the book of Acts. Jesus appeared to him, and Paul was sent as an apostle, one who has been sent with a divine purpose here. So he's an apostle, and he's also in the will of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now think about that. Chew on that for a second. He is one who has been sent with a purpose, and he's in God's will. He is in the dark dungeon of life, literally, physically, He's awaiting execution. And guess what, people? That's God's will. That was God's will for him to be here. In a little bit, we're going to find out that he calls us in verse 9 a holy calling. It was his holy calling to be in this position. That is something that we really need to stop and think about. Paul writes a little bit later on here in 2 Timothy 3 that all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All of us will. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, if you're a note taker, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He says, my life is Christ, and if my death magnifies Jesus, then amen to that. That's a pretty big statement to make. That this is God's will. He is one who has been sent to this position. You know, back in Acts, when Paul got saved, one of the prophecies concerning him is that he would suffer many things for the Lord. He would suffer many things. See, when I think about my calling and what God's will is for my life, I've already determined that. I want to be married for about 65, 70 years. I want to die in my sleep. I want all five of my boys to grow up and be powerful in the Lord and mighty in Jesus Christ and make a difference in generations. That's what I've already determined my will and calling for my life, right? What happens if that's not God's will or calling? See, we're studying Job on Wednesday nights. Don't you kind of just wish sometimes Job wasn't in the Bible, you know? But as we study Job, you see sometimes some of these divine things going on behind the scenes. And as we've mentioned Job on Wednesday nights, Job never saw, never understood why all these things were happening. But God allowed it into his life. See, I sometimes feel as Christians, we don't really give the full picture of what Jesus says sometimes. I was reading through Matthew 7 this week, and Jesus has this verse where he says, The path of salvation is narrow and difficult, and few will find it. He said in John 16, John 16, that in this world you will have tribulation. We can keep on going. James 1 says to rejoice in trials. Romans 5 says that trials and tribulations grow our faith. 1 Peter 1 says that trials and tribulations refine us. Those trials grow us. They take us closer to Jesus. I mentioned to you, I think, a week or two ago. This is just a fact. When I'm going through a tough time, I pray more, I read more, I fast more, I study more. I wish that wasn't necessarily true. I wish I would have that same heart of wanting to cling to Christ even when everything is going good. But the truth of the matter is, when things are difficult, I find myself clinging to my Savior more and more. And I look for comfort in the Word more and more. Paul, in this dungeon, waiting execution, hey, this is the will of God. This is a holy calling. This is what I've been sent for. And I know this. I understand this. These trials grow us closer to Christ. Not fun, but they do. 
How often when we have a trial in life, we try to get out of it. That's our first prayer request. Lord, make it stop. Lord, just make it stop. But what happens if that trial grows us? What happens if the Lord came to you and said, you know what, I can use you. I want to use you to reach the world. I want to use you to reach people like they've never been reached before, and your impact in this world will make a difference in thousands, if not millions, of lives for Jesus Christ. Do you want that? Oh, Lord, yes. Okay, well, the way I'm going to use you is through a suffering. Oh, Lord, choose someone else, you know? We, we, we don't like that. Elias and I were driving home last night from uh, the church event, the, the cleaning that went on, and Elias is kind of out of the blue, says something to the effect of, Dad, you ever wish the rapture would just happen? I said, oh, buddy, every day. And, he, and I, so I started thinking about that. We're just talking about the rapture and just how great it's going to be. Lord takes us home. We're done. And I started thinking about I wonder why he thinks that. I said, Elias, why do you want the rapture to happen? He goes, you know, sometimes in life, he goes, it's just really hard. It's really difficult. And, you know, there's something coming up and it's bad. You don't want to go through it. And you kind of just hope, Lord, I hope the rapture happens. I said, amen. And I'm driving a little farther. I think, what is my 10-year-old facing that is that bad? That he had, so I, find, I said, Elias, like, what's the bad thing that you're hoping for the rapture happens? He goes, well, when mom comes and says, Elias, clean your room. He goes, sometimes I wish the rapture would just happen, you know, right? <laughs> I'm like, what? Can you imagine a little 10-year-old, Elias, clean your room? Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you know? <laughs> but, but we all have stuff we're facing, and so often we just want to be done with it. And I want the rapture to happen. I'm ready to be done. Let's go home. But as we've said out here many times before, Peter tells us this, that we patiently wait for his return because the longer he waits to take us home, the more opportunity is for people to get saved. You have loved ones that aren't saved. You have family members that aren't saved. As soon as the rapture happens, guys, we're kicking off seven years of tribulation. Now, we're out. But whoever is left that's not saved, they're going to go through something awful. The longer God waits, it's more of an opportunity for more people to get saved beforehand. Beforehand. And so in some ways, thank the Lord for his patience as, as we wait. But here's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who has been sent, the will of God, grace, mercy, and peace. Real quick before we get past the greeting here, we need to talk about Timothy. Uh, Timothy is a great guy. Timothy is an interesting guy. His father was a Greek his mother was Jewish, which is an interesting combination. We don't know a lot about his dad other than he was Greek. Maybe he was a Greek that got saved. We don't know for sure. Now, we do know about his mom and his grandma. They're mentioned by name here in a little bit. We get a little bit of the background of Timothy's life. But, but Timothy is Paul's right-hand man. Paul's right-hand man. I had a pastor friend one time I was talking to, and he's been in the ministry for years. He said, if you find yourself a Timothy, he goes, never let go of him. If you find that one person that just sees the same vision you see, has the same heart you have, the same passion, he goes, that is priceless. And he goes, if you look at Paul's life, he really only found that one guy. And that's Timothy. And Timothy's quite the guy. Just listen to the description of Timothy here in the Bible. Paul calls him my fellow worker, beloved and faithful son in the Lord, brother, minister of God, fellow laborer. That's a lot of good descriptions there. A lot of good description. Brother, minister of God, fellow laborer, fellow worker, beloved, faithful son in the Lord. Timothy's quite the guy. And this book is addressed to him. And we're going to learn about the responsibilities that Timothy faced and why Paul was writing him to remind him of these things and to help them along. So as we get ready now to get into the rest of this book, just remember those two points written to Timothy. And Timothy is a guy that's mentioned through Acts and Corinthians, and he's all over the place in the Bible. So written to Timothy, 
but you also see Paul where he's writing this from. Keep that in the back of your mind. From that prison cell, awaiting execution, awaiting that death. So let's see what the Lord has to say here. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Here's Paul, once again, writing from this prison cell. And what does he say in verse 3? Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. He can always pray. No matter what situation you're in, you can always pray. Paul is completely limited at this time. Completely limited. Obviously, he was allowed to write a letter or two, but he's in chains, awaiting execution. He can't go see Timothy. He can't go out and preach the gospel. But what can he do? He can pray. Where did we reach a point in Christianity where prayer almost became, oh, i got nothing else to do, I guess I can pray. Wow, that's the most powerful thing we can do. Prayer, access, boldly, right to God. That no matter what you're doing throughout the day, you can pray for your kids, you can pray for your grandkids, you can pray for your unsafe friends and loved ones, you can pray for God's will, you can just start praying no matter where you're at and what you're doing. And you have this constant access to the Lord. That is just completely, utterly powerful. So often we kind of sit there and spiritually just kind of twiddle our thumbs. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Let's just pray. Lord, lead me. Guide me. Be with my family. Be with my kids. Be with my grandkids. Be with my unsafe friends and loved ones. Be with the ministry that you've called me to do. Pray. And Paul says, I without ceasing will pray for you. Years ago, we got involved with the family that uh, had a loved one that was passing away. And during the final months of his life, they asked us to come and minister to him. This man wasn't saved. And as he got closer to the end, he got saved. And amen to that. But here he was in hospice, and time was coming short. So a baby believer, only been saved for a little while, and he was just completely full of regret. Regret of not living for the Lord earlier, wasted this life. What am I supposed to do now? I can't do anything. I'm in this hospital, but I'm dying of cancer. I have nothing to do. Family called us in and said, hey, what can we say to him? What can we encourage him? So as he's laying in his hospital bed, dying, We're talking about just ministry and just talking about life. And we just kind of made an offhand comment to him saying, Hey, listen, you know, you can't get up. You can't go do things. But you can lay here and pray and pray for the generations that are going to follow you. And so we kind of left. Didn't think too much of it. Went back to see him again. The family pulled us inside and said, You have no idea what that statement did for him. That that was his purpose. And when you went up and talked to him, he would make it abundantly clear for the remainder of his days on this earth, the only thing he was going to do is pray for the generations that would follow him. You can always pray. You can always pray. Kids, grandkids, spouse. If you're not married, your future spouse. Loved ones, friends, relatives. I don't know what it is. Paul says, without ceasing, I will always pray for you. What else can we do? We can do this, verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. We can always pray and we can always remind. Always remind. I figured I started teaching out here in 1997. So I've been teaching out here for 18 years. I tell you guys, i got no tricks left to say. I've said everything I can say. So what it comes down to is I'm just reminding. You know what I mean? Isn't that what teaching is? It's just reminding. I'm going to remind you to be in the Word. I'm going to remind you to pray. I'm going to remind you to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Husbands, I'm going to remind you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
just going to remind you, there's nothing in this epistle that I'm assuming when Timothy read it, he said, wow, I have never heard this before, Paul. Most of what we do is just reminding people of how to go deeper in their walk and relationship with Christ. I can always pray for people, and I can always remind people. I can impact generations following me by praying for them and just constantly reminding them of what God has done and what God is going to do. That is what we're supposed to do. I don't care what season of life you're in. If you've got kids at home, just remind them of God's faithfulness in the Scriptures. If you've got grandkids, remind them of God's faithfulness in the Scriptures. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you don't have grandkids. You can just remind the people you're around, other believers, of God's faithfulness and what He's done for you. If you're a note taker, two verses on this I just want to share with you real quick. First one is Psalm 145.4. Psalm 145.4. That just simply says this. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation declares them to the next. We pass along what God has done. Psalm 78 says this, Psalm 78, verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Be faithful in what God has done and pass that along to your kids, grandkids, friends, relatives, loved ones. You know, one of the things that we do at our houses, and this comes out of the book of Joshua, when they uh, crossed through the Jordan, they took a stone with them as they actually crossed through the Jordan, set those stones up on the other side of the river as a memorial stone. So therefore, when the people would see them, it says the kids would ask their parents, why are these stones here? Well, they're here as a memorial to remind them of what God has done. So we have this book, and once a month we just sit down and we say, okay, everybody, what do you want to remind yourself of that God has done this month? And we sit down and we call it our little memorial stone book. And then the boys all just mention a praise that the, what the Lord has done the last month. And it's fun to go back now and read these over the year. And say, wow, you remember when God did this? Remember when God did that? Let's just pass it along to the next generation. That's what we're supposed to be doing. I got some Bibles at home that were my uh, grandmother's. My grandma Urban, and she passed away now about 20 years ago. And it's still fun as we sit there to look through these Bibles and see these notes that she wrote. And to think, okay, 30, 40 years ago, my grandma was reading through this Bible, and she thought this passage was neat. She underlined this. She marked it. She put a note there. I said, wow, Lord, that's just kind of cool to go back and look at. Now, here's the tough part. What happens if the generations following you aren't seeing it like you're seeing it? What happens if these generations following you? You got the kids, you got the grandkids, you got the friends, you got the relatives, you name it. You're passing this along to them. You're trying to point them in Christ, and it's just falling on deaf ears. See, we all want to pick the fruit off the tree, right? Planting is a lot of work. Weeding is a lot of work. Watering is a lot of work. You know what the fun work is? I just want to go grab that apple right off the tree. Same thing spiritually. Planting, that's a lot of work. Watering, that's a lot of work. You know what's easy? Hey, just let me lead you to Jesus. That's the fun part. But what happens when we don't see that? And these generations following you or these people that you've been witnessing to for a long time, you're not seeing it. Now, how's this for a cheery thought on a Sunday morning? Your full impact in their life may not happen until you're gone. That's just the truth. Sometimes your spiritual impact on other people is not fully realized in the lifetime while you're living. It's not. Paul said, I'm going to remind you of what I've done. Peter said, I'm going to remind you of what I've done. Jesus said, I'm going to remind you, and then I'm going to go. It may be at your funeral. It may be as they're going through your possessions. It may be years down the road where the Holy Spirit just brings to remembrance some of the points you made with Scripture. And they're like, wow, now I get it. Now I get it. 
Can you go with me real quick to 2 Kings 13? 2 Kings 13. Generations impacting others. I can always pray. I can always remind. Paul giving this final advice to Timothy here, passing this along. Here's a really interesting story in 2 Kings 13. This is about the death of Elisha. If you remember correctly, Elisha was the great prophet of Israel that followed Elijah. Well, in 2 Kings 13, Elisha dies. Let's pick it up here in 2 Kings 13, verse 20. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. 2 Kings 13, verse 21. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. That's a funky little story. That's not one you see the little flannel graph things of in Sunday school too much. Hey, let's throw the dead body on the dead body, and the one comes back to life. Now, why is that in there? Okay, so they're burying this guy... And these raiding bands, and see in the distance, here's these people of Moab coming. Okay, they're coming to rob us, steal from us, take us. Okay, well, what are we going to do with the dead Bill here? I don't know, throw him in the tomb, let's go. So they throw him in Elisha's tomb. (laughs) Bill gets up. His name wasn't Bill, but he gets up. What does that mean? I only can tell you what I think, my personal opinion, take it or leave it. I think sometimes the fruit of your life does not happen until you pass on. That even in death, you can still impact other people. So if you're sitting here right now and you have a child, a friend, a loved one, a grandchild, and your heart just breaks for them. I mean, you, you have witnessed to them. You have shared to them. You, you have planted seeds in their life. And, and you're just not seeing the fruit. You may not see the fruit in your life. But let me ask you this. Are you okay in faith, trusting that the Lord's still going to move and work even after you're gone? See, the Holy Spirit is not bound by you. He can move and work, no matter what. And we can impact generations following us, maybe even when we're not here. And Elisha, even in death, is bringing life to people. Your death may bring life to people. Here we are studying out Paul's death, and that's bringing life to us as we go through this. Jump back, if you will, now to 2 Timothy. So Paul wants to see Timothy. He goes, I'm praying for you. I want to remind you. But he kind of knows that the end is coming near here. So what does he tell Timothy in verse 7? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Now, why would Paul say that to Timothy? Obviously, Timothy was maybe a little afraid. You know, we don't tell somebody, don't be afraid, unless there's something going on in their life that they're afraid of. My wife comes to me and says, I'm going to go do some laundry. I don't grab her by the shoulders and say, honey, don't be afraid. You, you can do this, honey. God is with you. She's not afraid. If you look in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua has this very unenviable task of taking over after Moses. Forty years. Forty years Moses led Israel, took them out of Egypt. Moses is now dead, and now they're ready to go into battle in the promised land. If you're reading Joshua 1, just read how many times God tells Moses, excuse me, tells Joshua, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid. Now, why would God keep repeating that to Joshua? Because obviously Joshua was concerned. Why would Paul tell Timothy, don't have a spirit of fear? Timothy's got a lot of responsibilities. I mean, his mentor, Paul, is probably not going to make it. Timothy now is spiritually responsible for what's going on. Okay, he's not giving you a spirit of fear. 
Now, some of your translations may not say fear. It may say cowardice. It may say timidity. See, God says, don't walk in fear. Walk in faith. See, you can't have fear and faith at the same time. If you're walking in fear, you're not trusting in the Lord. We're supposed to be walking in faith. Think back to the story in Matthew 14 about Jesus, excuse me, about Peter walking on the water. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Christ, what happened? He was fine. He could walk on the water. But the Bible says that Peter got his focus on the wind and the waves, and what happened? Peter sunk. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we walk. When we get our eyes off Jesus, we sink. And how many times as believers do we walk in fear and not faith? See, fear is not rational. Fear takes us away from the Lord and trusting what He has done. Because we serve a God that has created the world in six days. We serve a God that has parted the Red Sea. We serve a God that raised Jesus from the dead. There is nothing that is too difficult for Him. Nothing. The Bible says in Romans 8 that we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. But when we walk in fear, we're not thinking about what Jesus has done or what the Lord has done. Our mind just starts to wander to all these crazy things. Well, what about this? What if the diagnosis comes back bad? What if I don't have money for that bill? What if I can't find a job? What happens if this or that? And all of a sudden, you're not walking in faith. You're walking in fear. And you know what happens then? Oh, man, your eyes aren't on Christ. See, this phrase right here in verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. That word sound mind literally means healthy mind. If you've ever walked in fear and your mind has wandered to fear, it is not physically, spiritually, or emotionally healthy. It affects every aspect of your life. There is no joy. There is no peace. It's just fear. It's just fear. Now, I've told you many times before over the years that any lesson I teach, I have to live it before it or after it. And I had two instances pop up this week where there was a fear. Just a fear of this. And I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what am I going to do? I've got to keep my eyes on Jesus. I've got to keep my focus on you. Think about this. Ephesians 6 The helmet of salvation. See, if your mind is focused on Jesus and his salvation, you're not going to be walking in fear. You're going to be thinking about Christ. And how Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How Christ said, I will give you the Holy Spirit and he'll always be with you. We're no longer walking in fear then. We're walking in faith. What does Psalm 121 say? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. But too often we allow fear to get the best of us. And the what ifs, and what about this, what about that, God's not given us a spirit of fear. Not in any way. Fear is not from God. If you're walking in fear of what about this, what about that, you're not walking in the faith that the Lord has given you. And it's a battle. This world is a scary place to be sometimes, and our mind likes to wander. It is a a battle to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on where it is. But look at this. If he's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, power, dunamis, dynamite, that's what that comes from, this dynamite power, love, agape, this God-given love, and a sound mind, a healthy mind. See, that's what God wants to give you, not fear, but this dynamite power, this agape love, this just love of God, and God has loved you, and a sound mind. Man, that's what I want. That's what I want. And that's what the Lord has given us here. It's kind of interesting, in the book of Acts, when the apostles were faced with fear, in Acts 4, where they basically said, preach about Jesus and we'll kill you, their response to that was, Lord, we need to pray for boldness. If you go look in Acts 4, they, they talk about boldness four times. Excuse me, three times. Boldness literally means, in, the, in a biblical term, absence of fear. Now, why can we be bold? Because we serve a God. Well, first off, we serve a God that's not afraid of anything. 
We serve a God that's created the world. We serve a God that's handled all these things. And as we've said many times out here before, what problem are you facing in Northwest Ohio that's bigger than the creation of the world? Nothing. Let's not walk in fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Keep our helmet of salvation on and focus on the Lord. So verse 8, Therefore, therefore, Timothy, since you know I'm praying for you, you know I'm reminding you of the truth, and you know that God has not given you a spirit of fear. Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. See, pause to bring up that suffering word again. He brings it up here in verse 8. He brings it up in verse 12. He brings it up in chapter 2. Suffering. I mean, Paul's suffering. He's awaiting death. That's suffering. But as we mentioned earlier in the lesson, this suffering, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. See, God had called Paul into a relationship with Christ. God called him. Paul is an apostle of sin. Paul is the will of God. And this is part of that plan, that suffering. As we mentioned earlier in the message, I don't really see suffering as a great evangelical tool. But the Lord does. I don't really like the idea of suffering to make me a stronger believer. The Lord says, but James, I can use this to refine you. Remember the flip side of suffering. See, we almost are presenting God as this God that dislikes to torture us. No. Psalms makes it clear the Lord is good and does good. Romans 8, 28, all things God works for the good. Jeremiah 29, God has a wonderful plan for our lives. That plan, though, can include sometimes seasons of difficulty that takes us deeper into our walk in relationship with Him. As I mentioned once again earlier in the message, I pray more, I read more, I fast more when I'm going through difficult times. That suffering, the Lord uses it to hopefully be a light and a witness to others. So verse 9, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace that was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. It's God's grace that saves you. It's God calling that brings you into relationship with Jesus Christ before time began. Paul says, listen. And he goes, I didn't plan this. I didn't purpose this. This isn't my will. This is God's will. And I walk in that plan. Verse 10, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, Paul says, wait a second. You think I'm going to die? Death's been abolished. You think if they take my life on this earth, I'm done? No, I'm immortal. I have the light through the gospel of Christ. What, what happens when they kill Paul? He finally starts to live. You ever thought about that? When they take his life, he actually finally gets to live. He says in Philippians, my death is gain, he says. Death? You think you're going to kill me? No, death has been abolished. I'm sorry, you're, you're not going to kill me. If you take my life on this earth, I'm just going to live forever and all of eternity. Isn't that an amazing concept when you look at it from that perspective? I am immortal. I will live forever through Jesus Christ. So, death? Physical death, yes. But death has been abolished. I will live forever in heaven. So if they take Paul's life, he's not going to die. He's going to live his death brings life. His death brings life. I remember years ago out here, and I don't really don't like to uh, point out people, but I'm going to point them out here since they're both here this morning. So, uh, Ron, I'm going to pick on you for a second. Remember when you had cancer and you went to Rich? Remember what you said? 
And you said to Rich, what's the worst that could happen? And you said, the worst that could happen is I would die. And what was Richard's response? Yeah, the worst that would happen is you could live. That's what Rich said. Ron, when he struggled, when battled cancer, he went to Rich and he just made a comment. Hey, what's the worst that could happen? I could die. Richard's response was, well, the worst that could happen is you could live. Worst thing that could happen to me today is I live. I mean, you ever thought about that? The best thing that can happen is, hey, James, time to go home. Are you serious, Lord? I get to go home now? Yeah, come on home. Wow. Death has been abolished. Immortality. Back to life. Wow. See, and that's the perspective that Paul has. Perspective that Paul has. My, my boys in Bible class, they sing this, this old hymn, and, I, and I'm not really that familiar with it. I grew up in a church where we sang hymns, but this one I'm not familiar with. And there's this phrase in it. And that the first time I heard it, Don and I had to go look up the lyrics. There's a phrase in it that says, that's why I'm happy to die. So here's my little four-year-old. That's why I'm happy to die. It's like, what are we teaching him? But the focus is so much on Christ that as believers, as Christians, death is nothing to be afraid of. Immortality. Death is abolished. Amen. Paul says, you want to kill me? You can't kill me. I'm going to live on forever. Take my life on this earth, and I'll live on. Verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, and a, excuse me, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Well, that's quite the resume in verse 11. Preacher, apostle, teacher. Preacher, one who proclaims the gospel. Called to be a preacher. An apostle, one who has been sent. Teacher, somebody gets to explain the scriptures. Boy, that's a fun Fun title that he has there. Preacher, apostle, and teacher. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Two final points here in verse 12. Paul says, yes, I'm suffering. I'm not ashamed of this, though. He says two things. First off, I know that I have committed to him until the day. I know what I've committed to him. Some of your translations in verse 12 say entrusted. In the original Greek, that's a banking term. It means that you take something valuable and you give it to them and they keep it safe. What Paul is saying here is he's facing his death. He goes, I have entrusted, I have committed this work, this ministry to you, Lord. So it's not me. Boy, isn't that a wonderful feeling as a believer? You don't have to get anybody saved. You just need to point them towards Jesus. I was reading in John this morning for devotions. What did John the Baptist do? He saw Jesus, pointed his disciples towards, uh, excuse me, towards Jesus. What did Andrew do? Andrew introduced his brother to Jesus. What did Philip do? Introduced his brother to Jesus. What is my role in life? To introduce as many people as I can into Jesus Christ. And then when I introduce them to Jesus Christ, they have to decide whether they were in relationship with him. But I just introduce. I entrust that to the Lord. It's so difficult sometimes as a pastor because you just, you just care and you see people making decisions that you just, this is not a good choice. This is not biblically sound. You try to point them in the right direction. You try to help. Sometimes they don't want to hear. Well, verse 12, I have to commit them unto the Lord. Lord, I just give them to you. There's nothing else I can say or do. And I trust, I trust that you're going to move and work in their lives. And I commit and entrust this to you. Paul, in his final moments on this earth, is saying, you know what? There's nothing more I can do for this ministry, these people. I commit it to you. I entrust it to you, Lord. And I know you're going to keep it safe. And what are we committing to him? Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. That phrase, whom, whom, it's all about Jesus. 
John Corson made a great point about this, and I just want to read this as we get ready to close here. This is what he says. He says, I know whom I have believed. He says, circle the word whom, underline it, meditate on it. Paul doesn't say, I know what I believe. He says, I know who I believe. That's the key. What gets you through the dark, damp dungeons of life? Not what you believe, it's who you believe. Many people know what they believe doctrinally. They know what they believe theologically, but they don't know Jesus personally. Others may not be all that familiar with theology, but they know Jesus intimately and they're a joy to be around. What will never get you through dark, damp dungeon days? It will only say, wait a minute, this doesn't figure in my theology. But if you know who you believe, you'll join Paul in saying, Lord, if you have me here in this dungeon, that's okay with me. After all, when I remember what you did for me on the cross, how could I not trust you? And it's about who? It's about knowing Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here as he gets close to the end in verse 12. He goes, I know whom I believe. I know Christ. It goes back to that point we just said a few minutes ago. Let's introduce people to Jesus. That's what it comes down to. John the Baptist, hey, there's Jesus, disciples. Go follow him. Andrew, hey, my brother, you've got to meet Jesus. Philip, you've got to meet Jesus. Let's just keep introducing people to Christ because it's all about him. To close with, can you go with me to Hebrews 12, please? Hebrews 12. As we're going to Hebrews 12, it's when we keep our eyes on Christ that things make a difference. As we mentioned earlier, Peter could walk on water as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. But when your eyes get off Christ and on the wind and the waves, you'll sink. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Why? Because when I wear the helmet of salvation, I think about Jesus and I focus on Him, not on what's going around me. My eyes are on my Savior and not the situation. Look here at Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. See, right there. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I tell you, that's the goal this week, people. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We keep our eyes on him. That is what leads us. That is what guides us. That is what gives us purpose in this life to say, okay, Christ, it's all about you. I know whom I believe. That's what it is. You can know the whole Bible. You can know all theology. But if you don't know Jesus, what difference does it make? We want to know Christ and Christ personally. And this is what you see as we go through 2 Timothy here, is this book about a man writing about his personal Savior Christ in his final moments of his life. And I hope it blesses you as much as it's going to bless me. Marv, if you can come forward here for the final song. Hey, let's pray this message into our lives. Lord, just thinking about the sufferings that Paul was going through, he said, Lord, it was for you. Anybody here today is going through a difficult time. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, uplift them, help them as you are just refining them. Lord, as you're using this time of suffering as a greater witness, Lord, we just trust in you. Lord, help us to pray without ceasing for our friends and loved ones. Help us to impact generations following us in all that we say and do. And Lord, help us to not walk in a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and a healthy mind as we keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you. And Lord, all the upcoming Bible studies, prayer groups, outreaches this fall, they mean nothing without you. It's not about us, Lord. It's about you. Help us be a light and a witness in all we say and do. We lift this up in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.